Good morning. Um, I've been told to get started because I always run long. And so, hey, I'm just going to jump in. How about that? Good to be with you again. Um, So for those that don't know me or know my story at all, uh, Ray and I run a business in Benbrook. So we have a little company, engineering kind of things. And um, come on in. One of the things, Ray, his dad started the company, but Ray kind of runs it now. I call it my company. Really, it's just because I'm married to Ray. I really have no claim on this company. But anyway, so every year we do employee reviews, okay? Kind of a tense time around the facility, okay? One by one, we got about 24 people. We bring them into the office and go through a chart of how we're, you know, measuring their performance, okay? And for those that have been slacking all year, you know, it's probably a time that they're not looking forward to. For those that have had the interests of the company all year, it's actually kind of uh, an enjoyable thing because they know they're going to be uh, seen and um, commended. And... Also a pay raise, probably. So um, <clears throat> what it does is it communicates something. It communicates that what they do matters. It also communicates that they matter. And so it is a good thing for our business to do this, to, to have these employee reviews. Okay, I use that as I transition to our time today, which is, We're going to be talking about the judgment of God. And isn't it interesting how everything is like coming together? I mean, we've been in church talking about uh, in Joshua. We're not even in 2 Thessalonians. And we're talking about the judgment of the Canaanites. So we've had some unbelievable sermons on that. Uh, And then last Sunday, additionally, we had Pastor Sariki from Africa come in who is definitely, you know, could be considered in the persecuted world, you know, that he uh, is persecuted for his faith. And so all of this coming together, so I don't think it's any surprise that God is running this show. (laughs) We did not plan this, okay? And we find ourselves in this passage today on 2 Thessalonians. So we're talking about judgment, not necessarily a super light, fun topic, but it's definitely a necessary one. And one I don't think we're in danger of over-communicating. I mean, I don't know how y'all feel about it. I don't hear a ton of sermons, a ton of teaching on the topic of hell. Um, but I thought I would start this time to kind of reset our minds because we kind of come at it from a certain direction. We, we feel like we know kind of what's going on. But I want you to hear the perspective of someone who does not subscribe to our beliefs, okay? So I'm going to give you a little... This is... The way I found this, this is actual comment from a real person. Uh, As I was looking through articles, you know, things come across as I'm studying things, and it's like, oh, I'll read that. And this was a comment to the article which was talking about hell, okay? So he puts this, he he writes some, I'm going to kind of narrow it down a little bit, but he basically presents a parable in a parable form and comes to a conclusion. So I'm going to read it. Let's get the other perspective on how this whole thing, this whole judgment idea looks to a world that does not believe. 
General X is a brutal warlord. He has slaughtered innocent men, women, and children by the tens of thousands. He has raped and pillaged. He has committed genocide. However, on the day he is to be executed for his crimes against humanity, a Christian pastor comes to his jail cell and preaches the gospel of Jesus Christ to him. The general begins to cry. I am so sorry for all the horrible things I've done. Please forgive me, Jesus. Please be my Lord and Savior. Five minutes later, he's executed. Immediately upon his death, his soul ascends to heaven where he enjoys eternal happiness, peace, and untold riches with Jesus, the angels, and the other saints. Mrs. Wong is your neighbor. She lives three houses down from you. The children on the block call her the nice cookie lady. as she's always very kind to them and always has a plate of cookies set out for them. She has been a volunteer in the local homeless shelter for more than 30 years where she cooks cleans filthy indigent clothing, and scrubs the toilets and floors for, her, for no monetary compensation. She says she does it because she loves people and enjoys helping the needy. Mrs. Wong has heard the gospel story of Jesus many times. However, she prefers to retain her childhood belief system. Mrs. Wong is a Buddhist. Mrs. Wong died last week and at this very moment is writhing in horrific agony in the flames of hell. And she will continue to scream and writhe in horrific agony for all eternity. Now, dear conservative Christian friend, can you really tell me that the above scenario is just, fair, moral, and good? How can General X commit horrific crimes his entire life and still get into heaven at the last minute simply by a change in belief? But Mrs. Wong is going to be burned alive forever, despite her exemplary life of service and kindness to others just because she has made a mistake in which supernatural belief system to believe. If the Christian concept of hell is true, then we should all tremble in utter terror before the Christian God. But to call it just, fair, moral, and good is simply delusional, friend. Let's be honest and call it what it is, evil. Okay, end quote. (laughs) That's the end of that person. We're going to use that as we prepare to talk about some of these hard things that we see in this passage. Um, So what I want you to see in that passage, there is an assumption that justice is good, right? That was this premise, that this isn't just, but justice is good. And that's where we all find ourselves. Every person we encounter believes in justice. They all want it given, but they just don't want it to fall on them, right? That's where we all are. So let's pray as we begin to see... uh, let, let's, let me read the word, and then we'll pray and get started on this. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged, and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are indeed are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, 
dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. For our testimony to you was believed. To this end also we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Father, uh, we do desperately need you. We thank you for your word, but we tremble before it. Uh, it is a very sobering thing to read of your judgment. And so we ask that you would guide us here in our time and, and speak your words through me today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so a little before we jump in, let's just kind of real quickly the history of Second Thessalonians. I know you kind of talked about it a little bit, but basically, remember his prayer was that they had a lack of faith. He said, there's something lacking in your faith, and that was what the talk I gave last time was. It was love. They were lacking love. Okay, but this time he commends them. He says, your, your faith is uh, growing abundantly, and he uses a word that is it's the only time that word is used in the New Testament. It's like superabundant faith, and their love is increasing. So his prayer was working. Okay, they were increasing in faith and love, but as is the way, persecution had also increased and they're discouraged. So this letter, the second letter is about two months later, which is kind of fascinating. It's pretty quick after the first one. And you can kind of think, why did he do that? It's like he's seeing their faith and love increase, but the persecution is increasing and he wants to encourage them. And so Paul knew suffering. I mean, he comments on his own suffering for we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. So, I mean, that's Paul, you know, the strongest Christian that we get to see. He's despairing of life. So this persecution is massive and he knows it's hard. Um, And the persecuted church is not something that happened a long time ago that we read about in first Thessalonians. I mean, it's still happening today. Uh, I heard a a podcast from Julie Royce, who is a Christian reporter, and she was interviewing the voice of the martyrs. And he gave some statistics that were interesting and sad. Uh, 10 Christians killed per day for their faith, 10 per day. Um, (laughs) And just, once again, not coincidentally, but this Sunday is the day of prayer for the persecuted church. So once again, we have these things coming together as we talk about these things. But he relayed a story on this this podcast about Pastor Han. I don't know if any of y'all have heard this. I didn't hear this story until just a few days ago. This is a Christian pastor. He's actually Korean, but he has a persecuted. He has a church in China, of all places. But it's it's registered with the government. It's above board pastor of China. He's right on the border of North Korea. So <clears throat> people flood over that border trying to escape North Korea. You know, it said North Korea is a prison camp disguised as a country. I mean, that's basically the, <coughs> the reality there. So he sees these people coming over and he does what a Christian should do. He helps them. 
He feeds them, he clothes them, and he disciples them. He shares the gospel. Thousands of people that he's, he's helping. So some of these people who are being discipled decide to go back to North Korea. Amazing, right? I mean, why would people do that? The gospel of Christ. I mean, this is, he makes us do, or we do things that seem crazy. But they went back. They start discipling. And, I mean, in North Korea, they say it's, it's, you have to be very careful because everything is supposed to be reported. If you're evangelized in any way, you need to report that to the government. Well, apparently, in some of these people that they were discipling, uh, he, it was told to the government. And the North Koreans sent an assassination team uh, to Pastor Han and killed him, shot him. And North Korean television held a program honoring the assassins. So this is the world we live in. I mean, we're a little bit insulated here. It may not always be that way, but this is the reality in the world. Persecution still exists. So Paul wants to encourage these uh, persecuted Christians. So how does he do it? Okay. Verses 5 through 10 is this amazing passage of the second coming of our Lord, the day of judgment. And this is how, what he thinks is the most encouraging thing he can tell them to persevere. So, little definition of judgment. Judgment is defined as the final determination of the rights and obligations of the parties involved. Okay? So, a judgment is the final determination of, of what is right and wrong. So, to have judgment, you've got to have a judge, right? It's implied. And so, here we see in this passage... <laughs> This revealing of this judge. Now, apocalypse is one of those words that most people know, even if you're not a Christian. You know, as I was thinking, I just kind of forgot. I tend to think of it like um, the great battle. I kind of get it confused with Armageddon. Okay. So if like the end times is how I would have said it. But actually what it means is revelation, which is why we call it the last book of the Bible, revelation. It's the apocalypse. Okay. It's the unveiling. And so what we see here is an unveiling. We see, the word is actually used in the passage when it says, you know, it will be revealed. He will be revealed. That's the apocalypse. And so we're seeing two parties here. We're seeing a judge and we're seeing mankind. So why two parties? Well, I said for judgment, you need a judge. But the judge is also one of the parties. Fascinating, right? Generally speaking... You know, there's two different parties, but the judge is one of the parties. And <clears throat> why is this? Because mankind is created in the image of God. So that's why we have God as one party, mankind as the other. He's getting ready to judge how mankind is done at being his image. And so this in Revelation 1, as it says, you know, as it describes this day, so this is Kind of what we're seeing here as described in Revelation 1. It says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Michael Wittmer said it this way. He said, We will be fully exposed before the most powerful being who has the highest possible standards. And the stakes could not be higher. Everlasting life, on the one hand, or unquenchable fire. Of all the moments we will ever live, this will be one of the most momentous. What happens then will determine how and where we live forever. So that's his description of this, what we're getting ready to talk about. 
So <clears throat> this shouldn't be a surprise to us that judgment is talked about. It's talked about all through the scriptures, all kinds of places. I mean, when you start looking for it, you see it everywhere. Even in Ecclesiastes, the last verse, after all this vanity is vanity, all is vanity, the last verse in Ecclesiastes is, for God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. So uh, Paul's great sermon to the, at the, at, uh, in Athens was, he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ uh, for everything that is done in the body, whether it's good or bad. So, okay, so back to the Thessalonians and their suffering thing. So this sentence in, in this passage is, is a little perplexing because it doesn't sound at first glance like much encouragement. He says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Okay, and I know you've studied it, so I'm not going to go back too much. But the this, what is this? And it's, he's been talking about their affliction, okay? So he's saying, your affliction is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. It's like, oh, that's in, it's like, what does that mean exactly? It makes it sound like their suffering was God's judgment against them. And that is not true. But isn't, it's kind of interesting, isn't that kind of what we think when we're suffering? It's like, we tend to think God is against us when that's not what it is. It is not that at all. Um, but what it does is it highlights their suffering for righteousness, for God's kingdom, sets apart these two parties that we're going to see in the judgment, the good and the evil, the afflictors and the afflicted, the sheep and the goats, the saints and the wicked, the children of God and the children of Satan. So this is what is being judged, two kinds of people. So this judgment is, it's evidence that God is just when he punishes the persecutors and that God is just when he pardons the afflicted. So that's why it, it is uh, showing the justice of God. And their very willingness to suffer proves that this work of faith is having its, its work in them. They're changing. Like when we're willing to suffer, when all we have to do is deny the Lord, to get it to stop, which is, you know, what they're talking about here. They're, they're identifying with the kingdom. You know, that, that's God doing something in you. You're, you're a different person, and God is working his, his word in you. Okay, so what is the judgment? So let's get to it. Um, Revelation 20 talks about it as the great white throne judgment. Um, and it's a long passage, so I'm going to let you look at that. Um, but it's basically where uh, death, Hades, and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire, and everybody's name that is not written in the book of life is thrown in the lake of fire. And the name of that place is hell. Hell is the place where the wicked go. Okay, so the imagery for hell in the Bible, uh, we see fire very, very consistently for that. It represents God's anger, his wrath. We see the description outer darkness. And it's kind of describing that it's separation from all that's good. And just a little side note here. Uh, a lot of people say hell is the separation from God. Like he's not there. He's just completely absent. I would disagree with that because God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. And he upholds everything by the word of his power. What it really means is it's separated from all that's good. There is no comfort in God in hell. 
So he's there, but it's not comforting. It's described as weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, that is kind of describing just the self-condemnation and regret that people there will have. And then it's also described as where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, which is the imagery for everlasting. It never ends. So one of the things to see in this punishment is that it is retribution, okay? And retribution is, is the way to say it's punishment for their evil deeds. It is not redemptive. It is not, is a different word when they talk about that. It's not discipline so that they get better. A lot of people have kind of tried to say, well, hell is temporary. As God is doing this judgment, people are going to be changing and repenting and, and hopefully one day be saved. This universalist idea that, that it won't be like that. But that is not the word that is used here. It is, it is one of rep- retribution. An eye for an eye, the punishment fits the crime perfectly. It is not cruel. It is measured and just. Jesus is very clear that not everyone receives the same amount. And our own system of justice proves we understand the punishment fitting the crime. I mean, we have illegal parking, you get a fine, you get a heinous murder, and you get the death penalty. We have this idea of understanding different levels of judgment, as does God. But we have this, uh, we hear about the wrath of God. And that is described in this fire. And it's a deep, intense anger and indignation. And would God, who, uh, would a God who is indifferent to evil be perfect and good? And the answer is no. He, to be good, he must punish evil. And so we see that hell is a complete cutoff from the goodness of God, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. And so you can kind of see why hell is not talked about a lot. I mean, as I describe that, it's like, ugh. I mean, as you hear it, it's, it's wrenching. Um, and I gave you a chart, to, and that's we're not going to talk about it, but you can just look at it. What's fascinating about it is that all these faiths have some concept of hell, which is interesting because it's not in their faith. A lot of these faiths don't have this concept. But it's, like, it's almost like God has put this in our heart to know that there is judgment. And... Um, And so you can look at that. But even that commenter that I read at first, uh, what was he missing out of that? As you hear that, and as I read it the first time, I'm like kind of squirming going, you know, wow, this is painted horribly. It's like, well, he was missing a lot of things. One was the true nature of God. That was nowhere in there. He had no understanding of who God is. And then the true guilt of people. He had no understanding of that. I mean, it was assumed that everybody starts out good, and now it's, what did you do in your life? Um, it, doesn't sh- it didn't at all come with the idea that they haven't been thankful to a God that has created them. They haven't uh, willingly subjected their desires to his, that they are rebels in his kingdom. But Romans is very clear, is that, Hell is just because humans have chosen it. Uh, We are condemned because we have preferred being our own king. This is what we're born into. Um, We have, and and not only are we rebels, we're double rebels because the ones that end up in hell have not only been a rebel, now they've rejected the one offer of God for redemption. And so... But even believers have trouble with the doctrine of hell. And 
I don't think I've got time to talk about it, but I just wanted to just quickly say something because I mentioned Stott last time. John Stott, Anglican priest. I used him last time because I, I felt like his, his uh, explanation of that passage was right on. Okay, and then you find out that Stott is an annihilationist. Okay, he did not believe hell was never ending. And so he, he writes this, this sentence. Uh, emotionally, I find the concept of endless suffering intolerable and do not understand how people can live with it. So that is his conclusion. And I would say it was driven more by his emotional repulsion at the doctrine than the scriptural case for it. It's even fascinating as he decides that destruction, the word destruction, has to mean obliteration, like ceasing to exist. The word in front of it is eternal, okay? And it's the same word that is in front of life when we talk about eternal life. So if you're going to say the destruction is complete and it is not eternal, then you're going to have a problem with the eternal life part too. So you kind of prove too much, as they say, when you, when you take that position. So just as a word of, of, of commendation, a reminder to stick pretty close to the scriptures. That's why you stick close to the scriptures and you read widely because there are lots of errors out there in us humans. So, okay, so we, we come to this. Romans is quite clear. We all deserve com- condemnation. So we've been marveling at his justice and now we're going to marvel at something else. All deserve condemnation, but some receive mercy. And so why do they receive mercy? Verse 10 states it very clearly. They believe their testimony about Jesus. So the hell, hell commenter, the guy, I wish I had a name, but he kind of got that right, right? He, he, he presented this case where this general X repented, you know, as much as we can believe that that was true, whatever, based on belief. And, and so it's that scandal of grace. I mean, that is the scandal of grace, that there is nothing that, is, that God cannot forget, forgive, even general X in that. I mean, we have to come to grips with, with that. And so that is true. Uh, that is what um, is our justification is, believing in Jesus. But we also see another thing about his mercy. In addition to not being condemned, we're also transformed. In the case of General X, he died five minutes later. So we didn't get to see the fruit of his faith. Was it real or not? But verse 10 says, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, uh, we are instantly transformed when he returns. It's that in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall all be changed. Uh, that is what they're talking about here as, as, this, as Jesus returns we're, we're, we're changed. It's, it's like the transfiguration picture. You know, when Jesus was up on the mountain and he's transfigured and it, it says he, you know, shone. I, one of the commentators said, uh, that's what it will be like for us. We will be transfigured. Not like a mirror just reflecting him, but like he, he describes it like a filament in a light bulb. You know how when, when it comes on, it's just glowing in its inside. And that's what we will be at the, on the last day. And then not only that, and there's more, okay? In addition to not being condemned, in addition to not, uh, and to be, into being transformed, we also receive reward. How about that? Unbelievable. 
you know, it talks about each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. It will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one of us has done. That's in 1 Corinthians. So, okay, so we have this vivid image of fire, and, we, and I wanted to now just tie this passage to the one in Revelation about the Son of Man coming, because I want you to see something. It's pretty amazing. Uh, so I'm just going to read it, and what I want you to listen for, because it's probably not going to be in front of you, is the images of fire. And, yeah, fire, okay? So listen for that, okay? Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. So here we have this picture of the Lord. And you should have heard two images of fire. His eyes and his feet. His feet have been burnished like in a furnace. So as I said in the, in the Bible, fire is always represented as representing one of two things. It's either judgment or it's purification. And here we're seeing the wicked are judged and the righteous are purified. But let's see how it's done. You know when it says the, the Lord will put all the enemies under his feet? It's like, where is hell? Hell is under his feet. And, and you have this image of his feet being burnished like bronze, like a furnace. And you have this, this image of Christ uh, standing over his enemies. And then his eyes. It's like, who can look at his eyes? I mean, that song about... It's the look that melted Peter. It's like, oh, yeah, it gets me every time as you think about his, his, the burning in his eyes, which is going to be love. I mean, it's, it's the purification of it's what purifies us. He who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself. I mean, looking at Christ is what will purify us. And interestingly enough, as you think about it, even in this passage when it says away from the presence of the Lord, that word for presence actually means face, away from the face of the Lord. So those eyes, if, if you're away, you will not see those eyes. You will be under his feet. So why do we receive mercy? That's the main hang-up of the commentator on hell at the start. He, he had a perceived injustice of it. He cannot equate belief in Jesus as possibly being enough to carry out justice. And, and on that side of belief, you can see why, right? I mean, when you hear that story, there's something in us that goes, yeah, that doesn't sound right. He saw Mrs. Wong's good deeds, cookies, toilet cleaning, love of fellow man, was much more valuable than belief in Jesus. So that's the question today. Why is belief in Jesus enough to receive mercy? And the answer is because we believe in the one who has received no mercy. I'm no expert on the Apostles' Creed, but there is this phrase in there that says he's descended into hell. I've never quite known what to think of that. <laughs> and I read an uh, explanation of it. I don't know that it's what everyone would hold, but it sure sounded possible. John Calvin held to this belief. And it was that Jesus actually experienced hell on the cross. 
And in Hebrews 13, there's this little passage that kind of speaks to what I'm talking about. It says in Hebrews 13, 11 through 13, it says, For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. So we believe in this one who has experienced the fire. He, you know, as I was thinking of it, it's like, is Jesus burned? It's like, at first I'm thinking, no, he wasn't burned. He was killed. But even in the symbol of the priest, they touched the animal's head. The sin was transferred to the goat or the, the, the sacrificed lamb. They kill it, and then they sprinkle the blood, and then they take the body to the, the outside the camp. They, they call it the trash dump, the Gehenna, uh, where they said this was in their literature where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And so there's this picture of Jesus' body being burned through this sacrifice of this lamb. So Jesus took the wrath of God. This is why this is a big deal, that we can say punishment is satisfied by belief in Jesus. It's because Jesus took that wrath, and there's no hell left for us. So, in conclusion, as we think about what does this mean for us, he wrote that to encourage the persecuted church. I mean, can we rest in the justice of God. Is it big enough for us? Can we lay down our own vengeance and our own in the things that we find in justice? It doesn't mean that we don't pursue justice in this life, but in this life, you may not get it. I mean, there may not be justice in this life, but in the end, God will give us justice. And I left with a, a quote from Rachel Den Hollander, which is, I love this quote, is, this is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet. It extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found. So as we finish our time together of marveling in the word together, I thought it would be good if we marveled in song together. It's one of my favorite songs. Even the title of it, Let Us Sing With Love and Wonder. You could even say, Let Us Sing With Love and Marvel. (laughs) We'll sing it the right way. But what is amazing about this song is I would like for you, as we've studied this passage all week, we've just talked about it, Think of this passage as you sing this song. And I need someone who's really brave to start this song. You should have the words in front of you. 